This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Hello, hello, my Let's Keep It Real people. You know I've been so excited. Yes, and thank you so much for all your questions for this guy because this is going to be so cool. Yes, here he is. We've waited a long time for him, Stefan Granier. And I hope I said it right because you know, guys, I'm not very good at that, but Stefan will let me know. Stefan, oh, I was reading everything about him. There's so much more, but here it is. He's a leader an author, and a keynote speaker. And by the way, he is damn good. I was watching all the stuff. He leverages his work experience and what he has learned ugh, over a 30-plus career spent leading people in various settings from office, bureaucratic environments, to war zones. Okay, well, they're a little bit different. <laughs> Hi, Stefan. How are you? <laughs> Very well. Very well. Thanks for asking. You know, I was I was just telling Stefan, like, I've never spoken to him before. I know very little about him. And then I'm reviewing, you know, like I do the day before and I get, get everybody to send me questions. And your life has been very full and rich. You've had a very, like, big journey there, Stefan. Indeed, I call it the University of Life, uh, oh. which, uh, which I think uh, as, as a society, we sometimes undervalue. We put so much effort in educating people in formal settings, but... Well, I think what I and, and many North Americans, Americans, Canadians alike have been through is the university of life. And some of us, you know, learn and uh, we try to bring what we've learned to the benefit of others. You know, I'm going to jump right into one thing that really sparked my interest and in why I was so eager to have you on. I was reading how you really, you know, your mission or your vision is to just change the world, you know, is with people no longer facing barriers to good mental health. That's a really big vision, but I'm all for it. Like any way you can get that across because there's such a stigma, especially like now what your main thing is corporations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. So why corporations from being in the war? Like why did you pick corporations? Well, of course, my experience with mental health challenges at, at the, my own individual level was following service uh, in, in, in a war zone in particular. And um, the way my organization, so the military, the way the, my organization reacted and dealt and supported me uh, was, was lacking. And so I spent, uh -huh. you know, the better part of um, more than a decade uh, trying to re-engineer the way our organization, I was still in the military and spent a great deal of energy as a senior officer re-engineering the way that organization supported its, its members. But then I, I was seconded to the Mental Health Commission of Canada and then realized in that work for two years how everyday citizens are falling through the cracks and realized that while it's bad in the military, it's worse out there in the civilian world. And when I left the military, I decided to dedicate the rest of my working life to to serving serving my country in a different way and, and workplaces is something that was was very important to me because we spent so much time in the workplace yeah well i think you can say that because you were in the war you know you can say like to say it's even worse i can't even imagine that but like why do you say that why do you feel that way 
I feel that way, very simply put, that, you know, while there is a lot of stigma in, in the military institutions, uh, what I do see to contrast the stigma of the, you know, it, it is still a male-dominated institution, uh, you know, and I think males, we are our worst enemies when it comes to realizing that the brain is not immune to injury or illness, just like any other part of our body. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the what what I've noticed is that there is going to be a bit of compassion towards soldiers who have served their country, who have come back, um, a different person who who are now struggling. And, you know, there's so much attention to to war and war fighting and even the first responder world and PTSD. But what now there's, there's sort of a smoking gun literally and figuratively that can be sort of something everyday citizens, family members, neighbors, members of the society, even members of the organization can say, well, you know what? This guy's been to war. He's, he's, I guess he's got a reason for not being well, but what about the mm. corporate America I get it. I get it. Doesn't yeah. have that excuse, yeah. right? This is why I think it's worse because there's no smoking gun. There's no reason, but you don't need a reason. You don't need to go to war to develop a mental health challenge. You and I know this, but society oh. hasn't realized that yet. And also, I, I do feel that while there is always the phenomena of what is commonly referred to as stigma, a lot of times uh, people who are impacted by a mental health challenge, you know, may react equally adversely to the phenomena call, that I call self-stigma, which is, you know, you don't need anybody to judge you. You're judging yourself, right? Uh, yeah. So before Absolutely. you get out the door, you're wondering, okay, how am I going to keep it together today? And, you know, I better not tell anybody. But really, you know, if you look at any corporate workplace, there are people who act inappropriately. There are people who will not understand and who will bully and all this. But generally speaking, there is a lot more good people than bad people in every organization. So, oh, I'm so glad statis- you said that. Yeah. So statistically, theoretically, and in practical terms, if you were to actually share what's going on, you're mm. more likely to get support than not. But stigma is such a big figment of yeah. not our own imagination, but we make it a bigger deal than it is because technically there's a lot more good people in workplaces than bad, right? So yeah. self-stigma plays a huge role in in in, in all of us uh, in stifling and pushing back because we want yeah, to... true. But it also plays a part in being resilient because, you know, work is not a pity party. You don't go to work to, to complain yeah. and tell your story. You go to put an honest day's work. So I get it, right? We've yeah. all, well, I've been through it. You've been through it. Um, but that self-stigma is a big thing, right? It, it, <laughs> you're right. And, but like you said, too, it is the times. Like years ago, it wasn't as understood. I think we've come a long way. And I also, as a business owner, I do agree with you. People do, generally, they're good. They want to help. But just like every area, we're always tough on ourselves. Like, I should know better. I should be able to control this. Why can I do this? Why is my brain thinking that way? I mean, we're always the toughest on ourselves. But I love what you said when you were talking about what companies are doing. Sometimes they come in and they spend a lot of time like, okay, this is bipolar and this is schizophrenia. But they don't show you how to deal it with it like as a coworker, as a manager, like what can you do even though you don't have the degrees? I would love for you to talk about that. 
Yes. So um, we, so my, my company is, is, uh, you know, growing beyond my imagination, uh, but that's all good. But we do not endorse the clinical perspective. Not that we deny there's a clinical perspective to mental illness and mental health problems, but we believe that mental health in the workplace is not a clinical issue. It's a leadership issue. And, you know, of course, if you have a sick employee, that sick employee needs a clinician, maybe need pharmaceuticals, you know, whatever. But as a fundamental issue, we do not turn to doctors to enlighten the leadership, uh, to shape the culture of an organization become supported. That's pure leadership. It's leadership 101. Therefore, okay. our non-clinical perspective is everything else that needs to occur in, a, in an organization. So to your point, what is the usefulness of teaching employees and managers about the amygdala in the brain, about bipolar symptoms, about depression symptoms. These issues are born out of the clinical narrative, which is very important for doctors. And up until today, there has not been an alternative like we offer. So managers, leaders of companies say, we, we, need, to do, we need to enhance our mental health literacy. So who do we hire? Well, let's hire a psychologist. What does the psychologist know? Well, they, they have a degree in psychology. What can they talk about? They can talk about the brain. They can talk about diagnosis. And so we constantly, pardon the word, regurgitate clinical information in a non-clinical environment. Employees find it very interesting. But how useful is that? Really, yeah. to, to shape the right culture, you don't need to fundamentally understand all the symptoms and the diagnoses and the amygdala in the brain. You don't need that. What you need to understand is how to support people. And that is not a clinical issue, right? So our, yeah. our approach is that non-clinical perspective. What about, what do you feel, um, is there a big movement up there? I know it is down here for the positive psychology field. Well, absolutely. Mindfulness and, and all those things. We're for all of that, right? But mm-hmm. when it comes to, again, psychology, and we, we have a, our company has a, a very strict boundary where we don't get involved in that. However, we, we have quite, and, and I've, as I said, you know, uh, to you, uh, the only thing I know is how to lead people. Now, I think I'm a better leader today than I used to be. I made mistakes. I learned through these mistakes. I was we able all. to be self-reflective <laughs> and say, you know what? I can't do that anymore. That doesn't work. Or that's not right. It's inappropriate. So, I've, you know, we're, nobody's perfect. But at the end of the day, when we put our associates, when I put myself in a room with 30 managers, we're not talking academia. We're not talking theory. We're talking practical. And we are really humble. And we can actually connect with the managers who uh, at the end of our courses, when they, when they evaluate our courses, they say, finally, somebody who understands what I'm going through and somebody who, who knows the reality of, yeah. of my function and who's realistic about what can actually be done. I have actually said no to working with other companies who wanted me to work with them, who have an approach um, with, with people that we're going to teach you everything you need to know about mental health in the workplace. And once you know this... Everything's going to be fine. And that's not our approach. Our approach is, is we're going to teach you everything you should be doing. Uh, and actually, you're not going to learn a whole lot because we're going to bring you back to things you were told in kindergarten, which we forget as adults. You know all this stuff. You just think that you can't apply it in the workplace because guess what? You are a cousin, a brother, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter to somebody who, when they're not well, you're probably capable of deploying those human, compassion, empathetic skills. But for some reason, you think that because now you're a boss, you can't do that at work. Of course you can do it. So, 
you know, we don't treat managers like like school kids. We treat them like adults who 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 are who have these tools. We just empower them to use them in the workplace. Uh, but understanding that they also have a dual responsibility to their their corporation, right? So it's, you know, you can't just forget you're a manager at the same time. And so this didactic sort of overbearing, you know, here's the here's the psychology of it all. Uh, I don't think belongs in the workplace. Gotcha. Managers are managers. They're not psychologists, right? Well, you know, it's funny that you just said like this stuff you learned in kindergarten. I just had this wonderful meeting with um, a few therapists um, in the school district. And they think even with therapists, the biggest thing missing is empathy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that, you know, they, they know all the things and they say, you know, they know the, the jargon, but they're not empathetic about who they're talking with or, or they're not compassionate. And that is what they feel is the biggest thing to be in a therapist. Well, it's because in the in the scope of the professions, I don't know how it is in the U.S., but it, it's 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 very clear to me that in in an industrialized nation like like ours, and I think we're very similar, um, the scope of practice uh, actually has a has a clear boundary there where you don't develop friendships, which is understandable with with yeah. patients, uh, and actually. Most, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Most mental health professionals get into that profession because they've gone through something and they want to pay it forward somehow. So they get a degree, they they become a professional, and then through that transformational process from an an adolescent, a teenager who went through terrible things, uh, who has recovered, positive state of recovery, gets a degree, through that transformation, that person believes that if they put that on the table, that it's going to be uh, uh, an erosion of their credibility in front of their patient, while it's exactly the opposite. But the scope of the professions make it such that, you know, these people uh, appear to the patient as being the perfect human being. When it, it, it actually creates a power differential, which does not exist in one of our key support services, which is peer support programs, right? Where uh, when you can actually connect a person going through something with somebody who's been through it and has recovered and can abide by the standards of practice of peer support, you, you not only lower the power differential, but you create something called hope. If you've been through it and you're okay, maybe I can get through this myself. Absolutely. So clinicians lack the ability by virtue of their scope of practice to provide fundamental hope. And I'm sorry, without hope, very difficult for people to recover. You break a leg, you don't need hope for those bones to fuse in the cast. You have a a, a mental health problem without hope, very difficult to recover. You know, that makes me feel so good because there's a group of kids that I've been working with and they had individual therapists and I recommended them to this counselor who does groups, like just high school groups, and it's all boys, all 10. There's about 10 or 11 of them, teenagers, all going through the same thing, like social anxiety, stress, um, not being able to you know, deal with the pressures of school. Mm. And I, even after, I guess, four sessions, one of the boys said, it was the best thing ever. Like after all these years of going mm. to therapy, he's like, this is the best thing ever. And I think it's what you're saying because they're talking in the group and they don't feel like they're alone. That's right. You know, they're sitting there with, okay, they're peers. They're all high school kids. It just so happens, you know, there's one girl and mostly boys. 
and I'm, he's a great facilitator, but, but more than that, they're able to go, wow. Exactly. And it's about relatability, right? So and, I guess and that's yeah. what the hope is coming in, you know? Absolutely. And this is what happens, you know, when, when you combine the fact that, you know, we don't, we still don't know a lot about mental ill health. Um, you know, there's stigma, there's some self stigma, there's isolation yeah. that creeps in at yeah. one point. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I dare you, you know, I've done it, you know, but I dare you to interview uh, 150 people who have struggled, who, who are currently struggling with a mental health challenge. And in that interview, at one point, you're going to get the sense that they think they're the only ones on the planet going through what they're going through. While you really? and I both know that's not the fact, right? But yeah. the sense of isolation sits in. Why? Because you're ashamed. You're ashamed of your behaviors. You have low energy. You think, mm -hmm. what's wrong with me? And self-stigma makes you isolate. And the isolation reinforces that perception. You're the only one who's going through this. When you can connect with like-minded people who have yeah. been through it, and this is no different than than other uh, situations, just of cancer patients. When a cancer patient can can discuss with a cancer patient who's been through oncology treatment and all this, who lost their hair and the hair grew back, well, guess what? That's when they start feeling hopeful. It's not yes. rocket scientist. The issue Absolutely. is we've we've cracked the nut on this now on how to do this in the mental health space, right? Mm. And we do a really good job at it because there are liabilities, of course. So when we work in corporate America, you know, People want to know, well, how do you mitigate the liabilities? What if Bob, the peer supporter, says something wrong, right? How do we keep them accountable? What's the training? What's the selection process? So all this is very doable, but we're still at its infancy. And it's, yeah, it's, and it's, it's scary because they're, they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. I know that to be true. Yes. They're so afraid. That's right. That's and what right. I can relate to you saying they want to play it safe because they're scared, mm -hmm. you know? You know, they want to play it safe. I mean, so many times I've seen it. I'm like, okay, we're going to do this. And I get up to the, like, the last decision, man, at the 11th hour. They're like, okay, Weston, we know this has a lot of validity. But I'll be honest with you. We're not taking that risk with you yet. You yeah, know? exactly. But it sounds like in Canada, you've cracked the nut up there a lot. Well, I think so. But in in the U.S., uh, peer support, by the way, is, is not something unique to Canada. In the U.S., yeah. peer support is quite prominent in many states. Yeah. Uh, and some insurance uh, companies in some states actually cover the service as a bona fide service. Wait a people. minute. Wait a minute. Let me write those down. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> Like, don't quote me on the states, but because I Because so many things are, I feel bad. It's out of pocket. Like, all the best therapists, yeah. the groups. Yeah. I'm not yeah. kidding you, Stefan. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, it's I feel very fortunate, but nobody takes insurance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, correct. But that, that's, that's, an, that's another issue. So, yeah. so peer support is not unique to Canada. I think what, what we've done, and I've been at this for 20 years now in, in, in corporate settings, and we also deliver... Uh, a program in one of our provinces here, the provincial healthcare level, where our service is offered to the patients of that provincial healthcare system, where our peer supporters go inside the hospital system, inpatient mental health units, work alongside psychiatrists, ah. psychologists, and so uh, you know our our service, I think, is is at the level where it's second to none. The credibility, the rigor is there, and we've cracked that nut for sure. Uh, but um, that doesn't mean we're the only ones. Uh, no, I, I understand. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, so we want to back up a little bit because I do have three questions that I took for sure. you. You ready? Yeah, Bert. All right, here's the one. What inspired you to go into the war? 
Well, you know, a lot of people ask me, why did you join the military? And I don't yeah. have a sexy story. I just don't. I think I grew up as a, as a teenager in, uh, you know, always been, I, I've always been risk tolerant, right? I always engage in, in sports that were, you know, high risk for injuries like football and things like that. <laughs> okay. um, you know, a little different than war, but okay. <laughs> yeah, but as a young boy, you know, I would uh, I would climb on roofs. The thing is, is that I th- I think the military attracts a certain person, a person that is not risk adverse for sure. Uh, but okay. I don't really have a risk, you know, a sexy story to say. Well, it's because my father died in World War Two. No, I don't. Right, my no. family was not a military family, but I did grow up you know, for good or bad, watching, you know, uh, the 10,000 day war series on the Vietnam War. And that was, you know, very impactful. Um, that I can't say that did not have an influence on you, but I joined the military, became an officer. And um, how old were you when you joined? Uh, right out, out of high school. Oh. Right out of high school. Yeah. And um, became a young leader, you know, at the age, I think uh, by the time I was uh, 19 and a half years old, I was commanding an armored troop, right, with uh, uh, just over 20 20 human beings and and then was a boss my entire life, right? So um, (laughs) at a very young age. Very young age, right? I mean, some some of my subordinates um, were old enough uh, to, to be my father, right? And so at a very young ooh, age, ooh, but you I had to be a, good, man. <laughs> well, no, but a lot of people get there to that stage and some of them are good. Some of them are not good. I, I won't, I won't say what I was, but what I do know is that I came from a very humble upbringing. My dad was a construction worker. I respected, you know, the hardworking class because that's, that's where I was raised. And all of a sudden I end up being a boss of, you know, you know, soldiering is a is a tough uh, t- tough field, Ugh. and all of a sudden I'm, I'm the boss, right? and this my 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 right hand person is right hand man is is could be my dad, right? So the respect there that I I, I think it went pretty well, right? Yeah. But you learn so much when you're thrusted into that reality, right? Ugh, I can't even imagine. So, is there any? St- Story like this was the second question, and you don't have to answer it. This, but this person seemed to be very fascinated um, about you being in Africa. So, when were you there? So, I was uh, in Rwanda in 1994 uh, during and after the genocide. Okay, and uh, so Rwanda, is, as as many of your listeners may recall, <clears throat> a civil war erupted. Yes. And uh, the civil war erupted in the midst of a genocide where one tribe was systematically eliminating the other one. So a lot of gru- you know, gruesome killings. And, and so that was, um, that was a tipping point for me because when I landed in Rwanda in the um, early, early spring of 1994, the genocide had just started. And unbeknownst to me, that was the first day of the rest of my life, you know. Uh, where it 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 triggered, you know, uh, a, a huge decompensation of my mental health, which I didn't even know was an issue, right? When you, when you're a soldier in yeah. the '90s and uh, you're you feel you're invincible, you jump out of planes, you know, you, you you do all this soldiering thing, and all of a sudden, you know, you start decompensating from the from above the neckline, 
in the 90s, you know, there was not a lot of insight there. And as a soldier, there's even less insight, I think. Yeah. Not because we're stupid. It's because we're... No, in you a, just weren't... We weren't thinking about it. Yeah. Exactly. It's like professional, professional, you know, hockey stars and things like that. We all think we're invincible to some degree, right? Uh, and, but it was the first day of the rest of my life. And uh, the rest is history now. So you talked a little bit about, you know, people feel... Like, okay, I can relate to you. So do you tell your story about what you went through? and Because you overcame it. Or you do or do you ever feel like you overcame it? So I'm, Or are you uh, always just kind of managing it? Uh, no. So I'm, I, I, would, uh, I would qualify myself as being in recovery. And being re- in recovery is equivalent to somebody who loses a leg, who gets fitted with the right prosthesis. Uh, but that Ooh. leg ain't growing back, right? I mean, I have per- <laughs> I, I never I, heard it right? put that I have, way. Yeah, I have permission from some people who've lost limbs to actually talk this way because I checked in with them because I oh, don't good. want to insult anybody. But the the parallel is is something I think we can relate to. That leg ain't growing back. You lost a leg on a mine, that leg ain't growing back. But mm-hmm. you can recover and you can be in recovery where you can regain your autonomy. You can drive a car again. Now, you'll never kick a soccer ball the way you did before, but that doesn't mean you can't putter in the soccer field with your kids right it's not the same it's different but it's it's you know their quality of life is is possible so that's that's what the goal is with mental health with mental ill health right and so um and i forget the question actually (laughs) the question was (laughs) no you do you that was a good one you were do you feel as if you know, you are, like you said, recovered, or you always yeah. have to deal with it, you manage it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the first part of your question had to do with, do you tell your story? I'm actually yeah. a believer that telling your story yeah. is is not, not helpful at all, right? So, and we have, so I give uh, keynotes across Canada, I cross the border every once in a while, you know, maybe twice a year, go to the US to give keynotes to medical okay. groups and things like that, but mainly in Canada. And some of the clients want me to come and tell my story. And I said, well, if you want my story, read the book, right? Uh, If you're going to give me an hour with the human beings in the room, what I want to do is inspire them that there's a new way of doing things. There's hope. There's a new way. There's a leadership approach we need to approach, uh, use, I mean. Mm-hmm. To actually complement all the things, the good things our doctors are doing and the healthcare system is doing. But we as leaders, as enterprises, as citizens need to stop abdicating to the mental health system. We need to stop saying, oh, you're not well, Christine or Bob, uh, go see a doctor, call the employee assistance program. You know, that mm-hmm. is necessary, but is as necessary uh, as a complement to what can be done inside the organization. So I just reviewed a curriculum of a training program that we're being asked to probably resell here uh, in Canada for, for some of our clients. And one of my you know, upcoming criticism of, of the, which is very good, it's a very good program. But when it comes time to, you know, when you're supporting somebody, what do you need to do? You need to do all these things. But at one point you need to, to tell them where to get, you know, s- support services. Right. And the only thing that, that uh, the curriculum says you need to do is access a clinician. And I say that's half the that's half the solution. You clinicians will help you for an hour every two three weeks. Who else is supporting you between those medical appointments? If, if all you have is a doctor, which is why corporately uh, we need to create those support systems as well, right? And so telling your story. So I don't tell my story not because yeah. I, I'm, I'm shy or I don't want to, no. but I use no. my time with people yeah. to actually 
teach them what else can happen strategically in their organizations to actually change things up yeah, uh, and, and, and become the change. Well, you know, which leads me to the third question, and I don't know that much about it, but this person, is it called desensitization therapy? Mm-hmm. Where you, by retelling your story over and it's, this is very controversial over here, so that's why mm-hmm. I, I wanted to get your opinion, and I, so I pulled this question. You, by retelling your story over and over again, it doesn't bother you as much, so you're like, eh, what is your opinion on that? Well, my opinion, and I don't even is, know it's called desensitization, but that's what he's saying. Like you go sure. in, and they're and they're so like there's people who are like absolutely don't do that, and then other people are like, yeah. you know, for yeah. it for PTSD. Yeah. So you know, all I have is an opinion, and it is you know that's what we're here for. Yeah, exactly, and it is an uneducated opinion. It's anecdotal at best, right? But here's my opinion. My opinion is that in in many cases, I believe that. Um, if you've been mauled by a wolf, if you've been in a terrible car accident, right? Things like mm-hmm. that, where you can really understand when the event began, when it ended. It's very, it's not simple. A car accident's not simple, but in a sense, it's simple. Do you mean like, it, yeah, but like being raped, like it's a one. It's a singular event, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, okay. I, I believe that if, if it's going to work, it has more propensity to work in situations like that. You spend nine months, uh, 10 months in a war zone, uh, and, and for corporate America, the equivalent is going to be in a corporate setting, uh, more and more stresses, more and more pressure. Wh- where was the tipping point reach? It's not clear, right? Uh, wh- what I call it is the, cum- the cumulative wear and tear on people, right? Gotcha, so gotcha. what are you actually talking about? You don't even know where the story starts and, and ends, right? So I think if it's a singular event... Um, I think that exposure, we, there's a lot of things with, you know, um, virtual reality exposure therapy where you put soldiers through, you know, similar situations in Iraq and things like that. So fine, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm against it or for it. My opinion really doesn't matter. But I think those things will have a, a better propensity to function when it's a very, very focused singular issue. For me, when I look back at what I went through in, mm-hmm. in, in my one particular tour of duty, I don't even know where to begin. So what are you going to be desensitizing me about? Gotcha. There, there's, there's a million things, right? Right. Uh, at, at, at a rate of 15 per day. So I don't know how one would go about doing 15 that. 15 per day? Well, I mean, you know. Yeah, from, so many. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so many. yeah, so many issues happening in any given day where, right, where you're just crossing the street and you're, 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 you're walking over dead bodies, right? So, so, so where does it start? Where does it end? Uh, not clear to me. But again, I'm not an expert with that. No, but I mean, you can talk from your point of view. Yeah. All right. So here I have to ask, what if you're a family member? This is a great question. And, you know, it's not about a corporation. And you feel like somebody in your family has an issue. Where would you send them? Like, would you send them to a certain therapist? And is there a field that you trust more than another because they're not inside a company? So the family issue is uh, is one of the next frontiers, right? Because if you're a very close family member, such as a spouse, there is a phenomenon where the spouse starts blaming themselves for what am I doing wrong? 
how can I better support the person, right? So there's a feeling there. There's also... Um, that you're letting issue. them down, right? You should be Correct. Able to yeah. Uh, and as the family member, and I'm talking about a spouse now that, you know, yeah. daily living. Yeah. As the family, as the person with the diagnosis over a longitudinal period of time starts recovering. Why? Because, yes, uh, the person was referred to, they're, 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 they're treatment compliant, things are getting better. Often what happens, and we did, a, we did a fairly extensive research here in Canada regarding families uh, years ago, about 20 years ago, what happens is as the patient, as the person suffering from the methanol starts to recover, the family support person starts to crash. Why? Because there is that cumulative wear and tear on the family member. And so in the wake of, of, of realizing... So they that, start crashing. They go the well, opposite. Yeah, because it's exhausting, right? This, this guilt, am I doing enough? Not walking on eggshells in many cases. Oh, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to... He hasn't gone to therapy this week. I don't want to nag. I don't want to... Right? So you're constantly on edge. And in fact, in <gasps> my so book... so true. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so so in, in the book uh, that I wrote... Uh, Which after book? The, war, uh, the book After the War. Okay. Um, I, I allocated a part of a chapter to my former wife. The, you know, the, the person that is was with me at the time, uh, the mother of my children, the grandmother of my grandchildren. And she expresses it pretty well. The phenomena that occurs uh, within the spouse uh, and what, mm. what, what is going on with her. Uh, so that is, it's a great question. And it is one of the next frontiers because the family caregiver ends up giving so much and our family caregivers, the, the people who live with people with mental health challenges, yeah. are on the front lines of this every single day, and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to be, uh, and and it's going to have an impact on their health, right? So by yeah. us not creating all those support systems for for the family unit, we are actually trading Peter for Paul. It's like playing whack-a-mole, right? You treat the patient. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he or she starts getting better. Next patient is the family member because it's you so did right. So your concept's like a revolving door, right? So what you're saying, it should be more of a family counseling, like the fam you know how they have family counseling centers for everyone in the family. Well, again, you know, I'm no expert on the therapy side of things, but what I do know is our clients now in Canada who implement our programs, our peer support programs. These are they're very robust. You yeah, know, peer support program for corporations. You know, I was really pleased last year for the first time, one of our clients implemented what I call a you know, sort of a three-legged stool program where the program uh, is available to their employees. It's available uh, to their alumni, retired employees. And by the way, some retired employees come back and support current employees, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so that's interesting. And then that's the, that's the crux here. And then they extended their program, our program, to the families. So the family member, the spouse of the employee is not on the payroll, but that company finally realized that unless we support the family and support that family member mm. to support our employee, we are really not looking at this from a holistic perspective. Right, so That's that was awesome. re it was really transformational for us to implement a peer support program for employees, the alumni, the retired people, and the family members. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because it's so important. 
You yep. spend so much time with them. By I the mean, way, a, a great American called Charles Figley, Dr. Charles Figley, writes extensively out of Florida State University uh, about the family system, right? And I refer your, your, your listeners to, to his writings, and you can Google Charles. I co-authored a chapter with Charles years oh, ago. Did you? And, and Bill Nash, yeah, from the U.S. Marine Corps. Charles is, to me, Charles is uh, somebody that... He, Anyway, he's he's getting older now for sure, but he um, he's a force to contend with, and this man brings so much insight to to this whole family piece, amongst many other things. I freaking love that. I am definitely going to be on that one. Great. All right. So you, but you do within the corporations. Are you dealing a lot with prevention? I mean, that's what you want, right? Well, to us, yeah. uh, it is all about primary prevention because we're not treating anybody, right? Right. So Absolutely. for us, when we so our main service offerings are um, are all about equipping, uh, reminding managers that they're humans and the skills they deploy at home to support loved ones are the same skills they can deploy at work, right? So right. shaping a management culture that is more supportive to the right is is a, a key prevention primary prevention so what you're doing now you're working on the organizational culture although organizational culture is a separate service offering of ours where we can go in to you know organizations with a very dysfunctional business unit uh, and, and actually work on the culture how are people relating to each other i'm not saying how how polite are people no, but how are they working together as a culture right are they stepping on each other's heads to get ahead or are they actually collaborating? So that has a mental health impact. If the culture is dysfunctional, it's going to erode the mental health of people. And again, if you work on the culture, another primary prevention point in, 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 in corporate America, um, peer support is another primary prevention. Not everybody, by the way, who's going through a rough time needs to see a clinician. You know, if you have a, if you have a hangnail, do you go see a doctor? No. But it might hurt. It might be painful. So the fact that you experience pain doesn't always lead you to a doctor. The fact that you're experiencing life going through a hard time may or may not require you to see a doctor. Now, you're going to decide that, not the peer supporter. But right. accessing way ahead of time, upstream, <sighs> yep. a person who can actually have a supportive conversation and make you realize certain things is instrumental, again, in the primary prevention um, sort of modality, right? So all these things we do with corporate, uh, with corporations is all about primary prevention. And of course, if somebody does go on sick leave and is now coming back to work, now you're way downstream, uh, the support conversation continues. So it is also an intervention at the same time. Right? Because supporting people is along the continuum. It's not like an EAP program where you have six sessions and that's it. The, the, the yeah. relationship keeps going for as long as the person who needs support feels it's supportive, right? So when you go into a company then, does it depend on the size and what you see, how long you're in there to work with them? Yeah, exactly. So uh, a few, uh, not too long ago, I, you know, just after Christmas, actually, we, we, we met with uh, a, a large mining company. And, uh, you know, right now we've discussed multiple options uh, of, of what can, can happen. And they're looking at, you know, their own engagement survey results. Where are the biggest problems occurring? And then we'll, we'll, we'll do a further diagnosis. One thing that your listeners may not know about is, in Canada, we created uh, a, a standard for psychological health and safety. Uh, and so 
the Canadian Standard Association put out that standard. It's a free download. And organizations are encouraged to, it's not legislated. It's not, you know, you don't have to meet that standard right. yet. Right. Um, organizations are encouraged, and there's a lot of early adopters. But what we realized at MHI and my company is that a lot of organizations, oh, it's, it's, that's a good thing. There's a standard. Uh, but they just don't have the time, energy, uh, or, or capacity to actually work towards meeting the standards. So we do have a service offering around there. And one of the very interesting things about that is that the standard and, and our and our measurement tools uh, allows an organization to do a very deep dive and understand where they are lacking, not anecdotally, against a standard. So there are 13 risk factors in the standard. We at MHI added three more factors. We thought the standard wasn't rigorous enough, so we added our own three factors based on our own corporate experience. And so when we measure... An organization, we measure them against a standard plus a couple of MHI factors. And so leaders understand what is wrong and they, you know, we, we tell them how to course correct that in order for them to align to the standard. Like any other occupational health um, uh, modality, this mm-hmm. is no different. We just realize that in the mental health, it's, uh, it's not tangible. It's not, oh, 30% of your employees don't have steel toe boots, right? Well, that's easy. Business leaders know what to do and how to course correct that. Mental health is gray. It's not black or white. Therefore, our support is, is, um, is, is appreciated there. Yeah, I love though, I was, I was sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, how does it go over when you tell these companies that they shouldn't focus on productivity, you know, that they need to focus on your people? I just don't know how that goes over for you. Well, nobody's insulted me so far. I think it makes it <laughs> okay. makes inherent sense. I think to to the business leader, I think the, I think that quote, uh, you know, if you have, <laughs> yeah, the quote is, you know, if you focus on productivity, people will 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 fall. If you focus on on, on people, your productivity is going to bounce back, right? So, I mean, I don't think they're they don't disagree. They just don't know how. And so this is where, you know, for those business leaders who, who call us up, when we have these conversations, they start realizing, oh my God, yeah, yeah, this is how focusing on your people will, will, will change the way we function as an organization, right? We're still going to produce batteries or we're going to still make cars, but our people are not going to leave as often on short-term or long-term disability. Our employee assistance program statistics are going to go up. We're already paying for the darn service. Right, we're paying two fifty per employee per month for the service. Gotcha. Might as well have people access the service, and we know EAP are grossly underutilized, and these are great services. But employees are paranoid; they don't want to access it. They think the EAP is going to give names to the company, uh, or they just don't trust. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because they're paranoid. And so, with our programs, you know, all of this starts happening. And, and we know this because our clients have reported back to us, right? We don't measure our own programs and how effective they are. We, we, we measure our pro, we evaluate our programs, but what happens to the company afterwards is all self-reported, right? Yeah. So with that being said, what is your most challenging part? Like what do you uh, think? Right now, a capacity building. Yeah. Capacity building. Okay. For us, right? Because we are, we are growing um, and uh, we are finding amazing human beings that can help us deliver the service. But our service offerings are not cookie cutter and they're not, um, they're not in the mainstream. We're a boutique 
mental health consultancy. And therefore, for us, it is a lot more difficult than to say, okay, we need uh, three more social workers or another psychologist on the team, right? Okay. So the skills our people bring, uh, they need to have a great deal of experience inside industry as leaders, as managers, as, as, as employees. They need to bring lived experience and they need to bring all sorts of skills to, to the company. And this is not something you learn. This is, this is something you learn through the university of life. Yeah. And so for every 10 uh, people who will reach out to MHI who say, hey, listen, we heard about your company. I saw Stefan do a keynote. Uh, you know, I'd be interested to know more. There might be one that we will consider onboarding. Not because the other nine are bad. No, no. We just I don't have that skill set. We don't have a university churning out the people that we need. So that's a challenge. We're meeting that challenge. We're investing a lot of our, you know, corporate profits now in, in, uh, in, in actually you know, building that team. And recently we were, we're in the process of onboarding somebody from New Jersey right now. So we're really proud of that. Woohoo! <laughs> exactly. I live in, in, the, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, but I, I was, grew up in Jersey. There you go. <laughs> Your old stomping ground. <laughs> My old stomping grounds, but I'm happy here. So, it, yeah, so what you're saying is like, you can't just say, okay, you have your degree in psychiatry, you're a fit. You know what I mean? Like it no, just doesn't work right. that right. Exactly. So it's a little yeah. bit, but Back up a second. You also said you don't have your own training program. Is that what you were saying? Or did I misunderstand? No, we do. We do have our own training. So, yeah, we, you know, yeah, we, we have all of that. What we don't have is we can't rely like a law firm. If a law firm, you know, has, uh, has a bit of attrition, it's pretty easy for a law firm to, to find lawyers, right? Because there's a lot of institutions around North America that produce people who are have a legal degree, Correct. a law degree, and, and then, you know, you got the bar, and uh, you, can, you can just limit yourself to interviewing people. We don't have that luxury, right? Um, a lot of uh, large organizations uh, who are in the mental health space deliver primarily the usual suspects. As, so if they deliver a workshop, they're going to deliver a workshop based on the clinical narrative, right? Uh, here's the amygdala in the brain. Look at the brain. So interesting. Uh, this is depression. This is bipolar. Here are the symptoms. We don't go that route, right? If that's the route we went, we could just hire a psychologist or, or, or you know, uh, social workers. But that's not the way we go. We go on the behavioral management experiential side. And that's what really transforms the culture. It is not anybody can Google a brain. Anybody can read about the amygdala. And, and there's a million websites out there regurgitating what the symptoms of all these things are. And a lot of companies hire our competition to deliver material that is on Google. That's not adult education. I get it just you. isn't, right? So our education is experiential and it leverages the skills that people need to deploy every single day to change the way things are in the company. That's tough. Right? It, that's way more difficult, but way more rewarding for sure. Well, it is. And it produces yeah. different results, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to name names here, but for sure, uh, some of our clients have come to us after four years of trying things out uh, in you know, in the conventional mental health workplace space, mm -hmm. realizing that hasn't changed anything. We continue to experience 
uh, increasing short-term, long-term disability numbers, and it's not impacting our bottom line. So what do we, we need to do something different. And then people turn, you know, say, well, have you thought of other options like MHI? And, and then often, sadly, they contact us then, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bit like the person who has to eat 10 years worth of McDonald's food to realize, I might need to have a balanced diet. Well, you knew that from the get-go, but you were either, you know... You played it safe. You, that's what you knew. Yeah. That's what you did. I, I get exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard to change our habits. And it's really hard for a small boutique consultancy like ours to actually compete with the fast food industry, right? So, but, but it's okay. I mean, we're busy, we're happy, uh, and we're growing, and everything mm-hmm. is good. But it, it's not your typical cookie-cutter approach for sure. So what's your favorite part? What do you like to do the most? Uh, I, I uh, the, 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 the highlight of, uh, of a quarter in a year is when I get to go to Nova Scotia and I get to sit in the room with our employees who deliver peer support services inside the healthcare system and who deal with the mental health patients at the healthcare level. And I sit there and I listen to the dialogue, I listen to the community of practice discussions, the case reviews, and I'm, I'm, I observe the growth and the professionalism that is slowly growing in the profession of peer support. And when I come back home, I feel energized and I'm good to go for another three months because that's where the rubber hits the road. When you take a human being who's been through this and you put them in, the, in contact with a human being currently going through this, the transformation is huge. And of course, this aligns with when I see the evaluation reports from that program and I'm going, oh my God, look at what the clinicians are saying about, about our people. Some, a clinician recently said something along the lines, I don't know why we waited so long and I don't know what, how we used to do things with our patients before MHI implemented the peer support program in our inpatient units. So wow. it's interesting yeah. that within three years, clinicians can't see themselves delivering healthcare, mental health services to patients without a peer supporter inside the healthcare system, right? So that I really get a kick out yeah, of. Yeah, that, that's very rewarding. And the reason why, my friend, is because 20 years ago when I started down this path, clinicians were lining outside my door to say, what are you doing? You can't hire former patients to help other people. You know, it's ridiculous. And now we have the exact opposite. So it took a decade, uh, two decades. Right? <laughs> oh, well. <Yeah. laughs> so what do you want to accomplish in 2020? What's your big thing? Uh, 2020, I think uh, I'd love to uh, do more work with the, uh, you know, another healthcare system at, at some point. That that would be a, a, a really, a really good thing. And I, I think we really need to turn the corner uh, inside the company at, at streamlining our onboarding, um, our onboarding for our own associates. So we have a, a lot of great associates who um, who are presenting themselves to us, who want to work with us. We have clients coming at us, and now I think we are about to turn the corner on the recipe uh, to take an interested associate and turn them into a very efficient associate that completely understands how we function and who's uh, really good at delivering our services. So that is still um, a bit of a challenge because there's so much to learn. Um, and again, you know, I can't rely on universities to teach all that. So we have to do it internally. 
What about uh, the United States? Are you going to just stay in Canada, or do you want to hit us? No, we uh, we are slowly um, making you know we're penetrating the U.S. I think you know. Given you're asking, so yeah, with an associate, but what we don't want to do is open new markets without the capacity, you see? So yeah, yeah. for about three years now, some business mentors have said, you need to go to the U.S. I said, well, I don't want to go to the U.S. if I don't have people in the U.S. I, I can't fly across the border every other week there. That's unsustainable. So right now, part of our strategy is to work with U.S. partners. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're down that path now. What I think would be nice, though, is uh, I do a lot of keynotes across Canada through the National Speakers Bureau, the Speaker Spotlight. Uh, and uh, I think that that would be good. If I can start getting the word out, and the keynotes do resonate, uh, you know, standing ovations, people feel like finally somebody talks the real thing, right? This is this is not just theory, it's real stuff. Thank. I think that would be good. Yeah, yeah. so thankful for that. <laughs> so refreshing, so refreshing. All right, so... We're going to have to wrap up here soon. I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, how much more I can get in, but I'm going to have to just ask you, is there anything we didn't cover before we go that you want to say? Well, I, I, would, I would remind all of your audience that you don't have to go to war to develop a mental health problem. Don't underestimate uh, the power of human interaction. And as one of my inspirations in the work we do at MHI, Brene Brown uh, a, a wonderful human being from, I believe, Texas. I uh, have her book sitting right here. She, on she's my an desk. amazing, an amazing. And you know what? I, I don't want to sound like I'm crass or un- ungrateful, but and I'm not a cocky person. But I don't have a lot of heroes. You know, not that you know. I I don't want heroes because I feel my egos. No, not at all. But I, y- you need to impress me. You need to really be well uh, stitched and Brene, <laughs> Brene is an inspiration to, yes. to us uh, one of our partners uh, did her um, her leadership training not too long ago and as she says and you know if, if you're if all your listeners can remember what Brene Brown says so well it's when you're supporting somebody and this is these are my words right but yeah. when you're supporting somebody going through the worst time in their lives it is not what you say to them the words you use that will help. It is the relationship you build. And the fact that these people know somebody cares. That is where it lies. So many people think, I don't know, you know, Bob's not feeling well, but I don't know what to say to him. Stop. It's not what you say to him. It's the yeah. fact that you reach out. And we forget that as human beings. That sometimes in the face of adversity, you know, we think we need to say something and make it better. But that's not how it goes, right? And no. so uh, your audience <laughs> yeah, should yes. know that they have the power to relate. Uh, if they only reach within themselves to their own vulnerabilities and, and what, what happened to them in their lives. And so, oh my God, I remember those days. That was not, I can relate. And so it's not what you say. It's the relationship, right? I, I haven't read it yet, but I just picked up a book uh, two days called Braving the Wilderness by her. And... It's, you know, of course she talks about vulnerability, but she's also talking about how you embrace being different and how fitting in means not being like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And we all know that. I mean, it sounds like, okay, we know that, but do we really apply it? No. Mm, You know, because we think fitting in means being like-minded. 
I can't wait to read it. I'm very excited. But all right, we got to go, Stefan. It's been fun. I've learned a lot. Don't hang up afterwards. I just have a few connections that I want to give you that might help. So we'll see if that works for you. Perfect. And Thank how you. can they reach you? Uh, well, uh, stefangrenia.com um, is my blog. Uh, our, uh, I've actually one of the, our, our, our cleanest, uh, you know, web print, um, presence, uh, which is easy to understand is uh, supportyourpeople.com. That's, that's pretty easy to remember. Supportyourpeople.com. Stefangrenia.com is my blog. And out of those two websites, uh, you can click on a button and send me an email. Well, people, my let's keep it real people. I think you can admit he kept it real. And you know what I'm going to say until next time? Toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.